This week on The Futurists, Boaz Ashkenazi. I definitely see human gene engineering happening and people changing their biological states uh, using uh, this different technology. That's another and, Yuval Hariri um, point. He's like, we're the last yeah. generation of unmodified humans. Every subsequent generation will be augmented. I think that's true. I think that's true. But I think that um, super intelligence will be achieved in 20 years. Hey, hey, welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik. And my co-host, Brett King, zooming yeah, in from yeah, Thailand. Yeah. Hey. How you doing, Brett? Good, good, yeah. Good. It's uh, winding up for the year, and um, we got a fair bit of uh, activity happening. Um, but, Is Bangkok yeah, all uh, aglow with Christmas lights and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. No, no. well, you know, um, I think I mentioned it to you, but... Um, yeah, the the place that we have here in in Bangkok, um, it, you know, it sits on the river, and the the big event each year is New Year's Eve because we have sort of this surround fireworks display, you know, all across the river, and it's just it's pretty surreal actually. So, um, my son is in town, and we're gonna we'll uh, we'll check that out, um, you know, on the first, and in the meantime, we're catching up with friends. Right on, that sounds fun. Well, this week, uh, I thought it'd be fun for us to have a, a, a guest who represents a kind of a different perspective. Usually when we talk about artificial intelligence on this show, which comes up all the time, it's these sort of macroeconomic topics. You know, how's it going to affect the economy? How's it going to affect jobs? How's it going to affect the government or governance of AI? Um, but a couple months ago, I met Boaz Ashkenazi here in Los Angeles at an event. Several people said, you got to meet this guy. Uh, and he's tearing it up, up in the Pacific Northwest. So Boaz is based up in, in Washington. And uh, there he's been lighting up the scene with a whole different message, which is all about how AI can help small businesses be successful. So, hey, Boaz Ashkenazi, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having of, me. Uh, thank you. Well, happy to have you here. You're the CEO of Simply Augmented, right? So tell us a little bit about what that company is and, and also tell us about your podcast. I have I have a book that was entitled Augmented, by the way. Yeah, there you go. See, connections. Nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Simply Augmented is a AI solution provider that's human-centered and human-focused. And we build solutions for small and medium-sized businesses. We're really focused on that segment. I spent uh, many years at Meta internally working on productivity tools for employees. And when we broke off and started this company, the idea was to really help companies that are early in their journey, trying to figure out how AI can help them in their workflows. And so that's kind of the focus and that's that's what we're doing. We've got a couple amazing technologists that are my co-founders, uh, one from Meta, one from Apple, and there, uh, it's been an, a lot of fun working on this new technology. Look at What's you typical... dropping these big names, Meta and Apple, in the team. <laughs> it's but it's hard to get. Like you know, obviously, yeah, you know, it's a point of pride being able to attract people from those types of organizations. But um, you know, at, at the same time, um, you know, it's it's you know having to find those early technology people for your startup is always such a strategic decision. So sounds like you've done pretty well with that. Yeah, one of the, our CTO, his name is Larry Arnstein. He's also, he lives in Seattle and has been part of the scene for a really long time. And you know, what's interesting about his journey, which has kind of helped us through the process is that he has been in a, in a lot of startups, some that have IPO'd, some of that acquired, and it's a combination of small startups, but also, you know, working for large companies. 
And, and I think that mix is nice. All of us have had that mix where we've been on small teams and on big teams. So we can kind of relate to companies that are 35 people. Before I worked for Meta, the biggest company uh, that I worked for was around you know 35 people. So I understand what it's like to kind of be in that mode. Well, as let me probe into that a little. So you uh, you work with smaller businesses and middle-sized businesses. What do you do for them? Like, what does Simply Augmented do? How do you solve that problem? And what kind of company would that be? A lot of the companies that we're working for right now, I would categorize in the professional services business. You know, that could be accountants, CPAs, architects, engineers, IT professionals, hmm. folks that have knowledge workers that are key to delivering their content and their expertise to their customers. And what we're finding is that knowledge workers inside those businesses are getting supercharged by the kind of AI that we're providing. It's not always conversational AI. So much of last year, we thought about mm -hmm. ChatGPT and conversational AI, but it's not just about that, but it is very Gen AI focused. So we're looking, we look at companies, we identify the workflows that are the core value proposition for their clients. And then we're looking at ways that large language models can inject into those workflows to uh, create a, a lot of efficiency and uh, an impact in their business. And so, so let me understand that. Does, okay, a lot of times when we talk about large language models and the generative AI services, um, the, the general take is that people who do creative work, writing work, analytic work, you know, people like the people that you're talking about as possible customers, they're usually on the receiving end of this. And it's viewed as a disruptive technology that's going to put those folks out of a job. But you don't see it that way. How do you see it? Yeah, I don't see it that way. I, I see these tools being enhancing tools, superpowers for folks that could stop doing some of the mundane tasks that they typically have done to focus on some of the creative energy. Uh, you know, I call it living in their genius zone. And I think the more people in an organization that could be living in that zone, the more growth and, and the more uh, action can happen inside those organizations. I'll give you an example. So we're working for a company that's in the talent acquisition space. It's a small team of recruiters. The good news for them is they have a ton of inbound. So they're seeing like 5,000 resumes per month, so many so that the team of humans just can't read them all. Things are getting missed. And so we're, we built a, an AI that not necessarily requires them to chat with the machine to get results like you typically would see, but it's a dashboard when they get to work in the morning, they can see a scored uh, dashboard of resumes so that they can have a short list and go directly and start talking to those customers uh, or those prospects. And so I, I really think that humans at the beginning of the process and at the end of the process are really, really important. At the beginning, to kind of craft the AI and make sure that it's following the rules that they intend. And at the end, so that nothing goes out the door without a human involved. And I know that there's a lot of folks working on autonomous AI, and that's going to happen. You know, when we think about the future, and we're going to talk about the future, autonomous agents will be a thing. People start to worry that if we create these autonomous systems, we're going to relinquish control to machines that we don't fully understand, right? So certainly the, yeah. the large language models have emergent behavior that we do not understand and cannot explain at this point. Uh, you know, the, the current thinking seems to be that these models develop their own concept of the world, like their own world yeah. model uh, that arises, uh, you know, as I say, as an emergent factor. And as a result, we don't really have an understanding of it and we don't understand how they see the world. So how can we rely on these systems? How do your customers feel confident that they can trust these systems? Yeah, it's it's really a challenging one. And I, as I look into the future, I 
I'm not naive. I think that the technology will get to the point where these systems are very, very intelligent, super intelligent and autonomous. And I think we need to have controls around that. There's going to be regulation that's in place, but also us as businesses that are designing these systems need to think deeply about how we control these systems. Mm -hmm. I am thinking deeply about transparency, being able to open the hood and understand what's happening and why, for example, with this talent acquisition, why are you giving them a 72 or an 85 or a 92? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not they, just they might saying, be required oh, to explain in that. Right. You could imagine yeah, if there yeah, were absolutely. a lawsuit, a discrimination lawsuit, someone would say, show me how you arrived at that and show me that yeah. it wasn't baked in bias. What's the method for revealing that? How would that company protect itself? Yeah. Well, I think that there's different ways, but you know, if you can establish evidence based on the criteria of a job description, let's say, and be able to have one language model that is assessing that evidence and then giving weight to that evidence and another language model looking at the resumes, for example, and then matching those together and creating scores, you can go back to that evidence and say, oh, this is why that resume scored high. Mm. Now, we still have struggles opening up those large language models, especially if you're using a closed model and really understanding what's happening inside that neural network. But I'm hoping that as more and more open source models get popular, that we're going to be able to have more transparency and be able to audit those models more. I'm a huge proponent of, of, of open source. And, and I think that because of what happened with OpenAI and Robert, I read some of your writing recently about the saga of OpenAI. Mm -hmm. And I think that because of that, businesses are taking uh, open source much more seriously and they're much more agnostic about the kind of foundational models that they're willing to use. And I think that's a good thing. And small companies yeah. can use open source AI. They don't need to have like a whole engineering team to handle it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And platforms, the big service providers, Azure, Bedrock, you know, Amazon, AWS, Bedrock, and Microsoft Azure are making it available to choose those models that you want to use. And actually, it's nice because there's situations that are just cost-related situations where you want to use a smaller model because it's going to be less expensive for some tasks. And then you want to use GPT-4 because it's better for some other things. And it makes it really easy to switch between those. Mm -hmm. And I think businesses, especially small businesses, are going to want to be careful about how they think about cost efficiency when it comes to this. It gets expensive. This adds up if you're hitting these models all day long. Mm, that's a good point. Actually, we, we we chatted about that before, and I think it's a really important point to bear in mind. Two things you just covered that are really useful. Uh, the first one is for the folks who are listening that haven't checked it out. If you look at, say, Amazon Web Services, but really any cloud provider right now, they're offering a range of artificial intelligence services and solutions, and you can browse among them and choose among them. And so really, they're creating kind of a sandbox to test out these ideas. And given the turmoil at, at OpenAI recently, it's a very good idea for a business to not be dependent on a single provider. It makes a great deal of sense to try multiple options. You know, basically, you should have a plan B and a plan C at this stage when things are so volatile in this new field. Um, and so those services give you kind of like a, a it's like um, training wheels. You can, you can try out different yeah. models uh, and see what kind of results you get. The second point you just made, raised, and I think it's equally important, and we should touch on it again, is, uh, is the cost of adding AI. Because we tend to think this stuff is free because they often offer it for free. You know, for your first trial, you can do a few things, a limited yeah, uh, amount. Um, but the minute you start to buy credits, it adds up fast and you can blow through yeah. credits fast. Like I've blown through a month's worth of credits in a night, you know, just in an afternoon, a single session. Yeah. So it's not hard to go down the rabbit hole and discover a few hours later, it's like, whoa, we're burning a hole in our pocket or burn a hole. And in this is, 
And this is even before we get into specialized models, you know, and, and the LLMs and stuff like that that we're using, they're good for, you know, as we're calling them, um, you know, language models. Um, and the multimodal stuff like Gemini coming, you know, coming out of, of Google and so forth, you know, there's some really interesting promise in those things. But when we start getting into healthcare, or we start getting into banking and finance, and we're looking for generative AI solutions in those areas, it's going to require us to have specialized data sets, you know, from those industries around the behaviors in those industries, which, you know, aren't necessarily going to be, you know, current models. So I would see, I, I could see cloud being a key solution in providing sort of models that you can train and spin up quite quickly. You know, if you're a bank, for example, yeah. to create generative AI solutions for your customers in that respect, because you're not going to be using one of these off the shelf stuff because that's right. the data that they've consumed, it, it has nothing to do with stuff that you, you need in terms of personalized uh, recommendations. You know? Yeah, so you're already starting to see it. Would a bank start from scratch or would a bank like tune a model that's already been trained on other data? How, how would that work typically? You're seeing both. Uh, you're oh. seeing big companies that can afford it be, you know, start from scratch. But yeah. there's a lot of folks that are using open source models and then training those models. And the data that's coming back is showing that it's getting pretty close to the kind of levels of the higher closed source models like GPT-4. And so that's encouraging. Yeah, uh, and they're lightweight. See, you, can, uh, you can run some of the open source on your phone, which is kind of astounding. Like you don't need this whole bank of, uh, of GPUs to, right. to crank that model. But to Brett's point, uh, you're uh, already seeing Gemini uh, release a medical uh, foundational model, which is interesting. I think you'll see more of the big providers get very specific about the kind of models. You still still have businesses want to do it themselves, but you'll see the big providers also offer very yeah. specific models. Good point. Well, I, you know, again, there's a lot of arguments for for cloud, you know, as we move forward, not just for AI integration, but the there's a bit, you know, the big topic of conversation in the last uh, few months in in banking. One of the conversations, AI obviously is dominated, but has been the impact of quantum, you know, on, on oh, yeah. the banking industry because of the the ability of quantum to sort of break open current encryption methods and things like that. You know, when you're talking about banking and finance, that's a pretty big deal if, you know, you you don't have protection for your customers' uh, data Absolutely. and their money, you know, because uh, current encryption technologies can be broken by this stuff. So again, if you're going to be doing that, there's, there's very few banks in the world that be able to afford to, uh, afford to have their own quantum computer in the basement, right, in the data center. So you're much more likely to be using sort of common architecture. We know Microsoft already, for example, has some quantum elements integrated into right. Azure and so forth. So I do think that, um, you know, if we, we start thinking about sort of these common tool sets and, and leveraging this stuff, you really have to be in the cloud in the future as a, you know, institution wanting to provide any of these uh, specialist capabilities, which will become general, obviously, you know, in, yeah. in just a few years. So it, it, it'll be interesting to sort of see the way the tech stack develops. You know, I noticed that even today when we look at fintech specialists, you know, like if you look at Nubank or WeBank or, you know, um, you know, the wallet plays like Alipay and so forth, you know, the founders and the team that are involved in that, they don't talk about their core banking system. Like they have one, but yeah. they talk about their tech stack because they talk about the technology that gives them the flexibility to, to do all of these things. And that's, you know, from an architectural perspective, 
even if we start talking about including AI, this requires different thinking about the architecture. I, you know, I guess that's... Okay, but uh, those are relatively big organizations. Boaz, you're talking about small companies, companies that might have 30 employees yeah. or fewer. How do they deal with this? They don't have a tech stack. You know, what, what Brett's referring to is an organization that can afford to invest in a whole IT department and, and build out it and maintain its own tech stack. What does a small business do? What, is a, what does a local company do? I think a lot of companies are going to rely on the cloud and the cloud providers are really pushing hard to get folks feeling confident and secure about those systems. And, you know, we're used to putting things into Azure and AWS. We do it all the time. Think about all the apps that are hosted on AWS. And so people already feel secure. And so they're really trying to push this idea that all that could live in the cloud and that it's just as secure as, as anything else that you develop. There's another thing that's also really interesting and, you know, app, Apple has been quiet about AI, though we know that they're doing something both for Siri and for internal, but they just came out with a chip. They're that buying a lot of companies is going too. to Yeah, yeah. And then the chip is, it, it's looking like a lot of compute is going to be happening on the phone. There's mm -hmm. privacy issues that make that uh, something that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's kind of interesting too. You know, we're yeah. going to start to see a lot more AI happening on device well, and in IoT they, too, like not just on the phone. Personal AI as opposed to like company AI. That would be- Well, if you think about Siri, Siri has to run, you know, eventually it has to run an environment where there's no internet access, right? And you have to that's do right. that on a chip. I mean, that's, if you want that sort of level of personal AI integration into your phone, then, you know, you're going to have to do it on, on the hardware instead of relying on, you because know, it's the latency problem. If you want really conversational right. engagement with the operating system, you're going to have to have it at the chip level. Okay, so I also I think that it's going to happen uh, in IoT, Robert. So I think it's going to happen for businesses too, on device, in, you know, smaller uh, oh, like appliances. Really micro okay, but this reminds me of a conversation I had with the folks at Docker before the pandemic. Uh, at that time, there was a big concern about the cloud. And, and I think what we're describing is going to exacerbate that issue. Um, for a lot of businesses, the cloud sounds a lot like a roach motel, by which I mean... It's easy to check in and it's very hard to check out, right? If you, if they want you to put your stuff in the cloud. They're oh, going to yeah. encourage you. They have all these tutorials about how to move your things in the cloud and so forth. And then it turns out that you actually have to change your business process because configuring for the cloud is actually very risky. Um, and there aren't that many engineers available who know how to do that well. And so there's actually a shortage of talent there. In other words, it's easy to make mistakes. You can have security problems. We saw a lot of data breaches. And the big pitch at, at Docker uh, at the time was, Containerization, so you can build your, uh, you can build all of your cloud services in a container, and if you don't like Microsoft Azure, you can check your container out and move it over to Google right, cloud Kubernetes, yeah, that sort of stuff, yeah, yeah, that's right, and it, yeah, it was sort of like built on top of or with Kubernetes, but the idea there was it gave you independence. It was it shifted the the game from uh, getting locked into the cloud, and it gave you a way to get, you know, kind of choose your vendor and move, and and that kind of um, cloud neutrality or multi cloud approach. That seemed like a good solution at the time. Now, I haven't checked in with them in a couple of years, but what I'm thinking right now as we're talking about this is one of the reasons why all the cloud companies are pushing AI so much is that they want you to develop a unique uh, workflow, a customized workflow with the models that they have in their cloud so that you're stuck, right? It's like a, it's like a sticky approach uh, to get you to migrate your work process or your workflow to the cloud, depend on their, uh, build in a dependency on the AI and then it's going to be very hard to switch back out. And what do you think about that, Boaz? As you're advising companies, is that something that you have to consider for them? 
I think you do have to consider that, but there's another trend that's going to be happening that's separate from just the cloud, and that's the AI marketplace. You you saw that in the announcement that OpenAI did mm-hmm. at the beginning of November, which is you know having custom GPTs and being able to share yeah. those. Yeah, but Microsoft's going to have it, and yeah, Microsoft's going to have their own Copilot app store. Google's going to have it. Amazon's going to have it. You know, Apple's going to have it. So all of these companies are going to be there's going to be a war for the AI app store. And I think that there are ways right now to be agnostic about how you build your AI so that they can fit into all those places with multiple models. So if you think about being able to choose your foundational model, multiple foundation models, and being able to take that final result and think about it, think about it like an API and be able to have it in multiple marketplaces. I think there's going to be ways to compete with with your AI in these different marketplaces. And I think it's important that we do that. So you do you think there's a multi multi cloud approach? There's a multi, I guess, Absolutely. a multi AI approach, and then a multi cloud approach. I think there has to be. Well, I, I think it's it's uh, interesting right. to think. I mean, you know, when we we talk about the impact of AI on stores, for example, you know, th- those who are sort of familiar with directionality on this, yeah, you know, they say there won't really be apps in the future that you'll talk to your AI and it, yeah. it'll facilitate for you. And when you combine that with VR or AR, you know, uh, mixed reality stuff, you then have the perfect melding of that intelligence and the interface. But you're not, you know, like if you want to do banking, you're not opening a banking app with your AI and VR and going into a function in the banking app. You're saying, this is the mission, go do it, you know, from an agency perspective. And your AI is yep. executing on that, and it will, it will interact with you uh, as required. So you, you, the concept of the app as as we think of it today is really, I think, going to dissolve into these sort of these um, chunks of functionality around sort of core capabilities. But it, it, again, given what we've seen in terms of the huge influence that app stores have had on the ecosystem, and how it's changed the way we think about businesses and so forth. You you have this next layer of startups and so forth that are going to have to sort of come in to create these contextual elements of experiences using these these emerging technologies. It it it's sort of a, a whole new bubble <laughs> that could come. Of course, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Now we're going to take a, a break for, in a minute, but before we go to break, Boaz, what we love to do is ask our guests a few quick questions just to get to know them, right. get to know what inspired you, what started you off on your journey and so on. And typically uh, this particular poison is administered by my buddy, Brett. And so <laughs> this is time for the lightning round. Okay, Boaz, what was the first science fiction you remembered being exposed to on TV, media, books? Well, I think the first uh, movie I was exposed to was the first Star Wars, but the book that really impacted me was Snow Crash when I was uh, when oh, I was yeah. in college. Yeah, that was really inspiring. Yeah. I I was at the University of Washington, and and it really opened my mind to to the possibilities of what the future could look like. Absolutely. Well, I had the pleasure of meeting Neil Stevenson about a year ago, and wow. we got to get him on the show actually. But um, yeah, he he he, you know, the metaverse he called it. Um, Crypto, he called it. So, yeah. What technology do you think has most changed humanity, Boaz? I think that AI will change humanity the most. I think that early in my career, I was told that AR, VR would. Mm. Uh, we were very early in AR, VR. We were, we were on the first HoloLens um, team and 
you know, they had a bunch of businesses come in to kind of review that technology. And I remember at that time when we were going into the basement of Microsoft to kind of check out the HoloLens, that this was going to be the thing. And that prediction just didn't play out. But I think that AI as a prediction, when people look into the future and say that this is going to dominate our lives, this feels different to me. And uh, I think it's going to play out in a different way. Yeah, because there's different drivers, right? Like the drivers for VR, AR, experiential, so forth. The drivers for AI are right at the heart of capitalism. You know, productivity, automation, yeah. et cetera. Less friction. Yeah. All right. Um, is there, Name a futurist or an entrepreneur um, that has influenced you personally. Why? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, the futurist that I've been listening to a lot that, that really influences me is Yuval Harari. And Yuval, I, I like him because he talks a lot about the human aspects. You know, obviously he wrote Sapiens and he's, you know, he talks about uh, the future and he's really been discussing AI lately. And and I'm really trying to figure out in my mind how humans stay in control and th that he, he inspires some of those conversations. Interesting you call him a futurist because he's a historian. But you know, he yep. knows the long arc, so he can see where the arc is going. And that's that's to what he writes about. To be a good about. futurist, you have to be a pastist. Amen. We've said it on the show a few times, but hmm. okay. Yeah. Um, so that that's uh that's it for the lightning round. Uh let's have a quick break. You're listening to The Futurists with Rob Tersek and Brett King hosting today. Our guest is Boaz Ashkenazi. We'll be right back after this break. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik with Brett King, and this week we're talking to Boaz Ashkenazi. And Boaz runs a company called Simply Augmented. He's the CEO and founder of that firm. It's a company that provides artificial intelligence services and consulting to small and medium businesses. Basically, anybody that's not a huge company that can afford their own IT team, uh, Boaz is your man. Like, they'll have the solution for you. But Boaz, you also have done something I think is really smart for anybody who's starting a business to do, which is that you've created this very vibrant uh, kind of like talk ecosystem up in uh, up in Washington where you're at. Uh, I see on your social media, you're constantly going out to events, talking to people about artificial intelligence. Obviously, it's a very popular topic. And you've got a podcast of your own. You've got a podcast called Shift AI, uh, where you actually get the greatest people talking, you know, the people who are actually building the AIs and so on to come on and talk about what's current and what's happening. So anyone who's listening, who's interested in AI, check out that podcast. Tell me, is, uh, is that advice you would give to other people who are starting a company? And how do you find the time? Yeah, so Shift AI really is a podcast that elevates folks in the AI space, but it's also a podcast about the future of work. And when I started the pod, I was at Meadow when I started the podcast. And when I left, it got picked up by GeekWire, which is a media company in the Pacific Northwest. And, and we really are thinking about what work may look like in the future. And obviously, these days, AI fits into that 
you know, picture. And there's a lot of, there's an ecosystem in Seattle that's really, really strong. You know, we obviously have the two big cloud providers, Amazon and Microsoft right there. But we also have the Paul Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, which is really, really strong. It's incubating a lot of small companies. And, and we've got a lot of support in the state. Great university. Yeah, yeah. There's a yes. critical mass of talent there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, we're trying to kind of have conversations where we talk a lot about this stuff. And I also think that as a business owner, what's really been helpful is to reach out into the community and ask people what they're doing. You know, I, I think that's missed a lot. One of the things I advise startups on is doing discovery, talking mm -hmm. to customers. It's easy to sit in a room with a whiteboard and dream. But when you go out and talk to customers, they tell you things that are massively important. And there's a lot of people that are using this technology right now. And it's a way, it's one of the ways that I, helps me stay up to date and learn. It's really important. In fact, uh, mm. this is something that I noticed that you do this. Uh, you you do the work, like you get out there and talk to real customers and find out what they're using, what's working, and also what's difficult, right? Because sometimes in the yeah. tech world, we lose sight of the fact that regular civilians don't always understand the interfaces and don't always understand how to use these tools. Uh, one of the companies I'm advising is a very large technology company that made an important pricing decision without really conferring with their customers. And the splashback was phenomenal, like the pushback from mm -hmm. their customers. They were caught off guard by this. Uh, it was a tremendous uh, backlash. But I see that all the time with big companies. I think what happens is this: it's a sign of complacency. Uh, companies get quite successful. Yeah. They get a lot of users. And then they kind of lose touch with, with their customers. Um, it's super important to get out there and do that. But how do you do that? Like, tell me, give me an example of how you would go out and find out how yeah. people are using AI. Is that a focus group? Or yeah. You know, I um, this is something that I learned when I was at Facebook slash Meta, I was there when the name change happened. And <laughs> when the name change happened, everybody in the world needed a metaverse strategy. And a lot of that was optics. And when the, and right. those, those metaverses that got built didn't get populated because they weren't thinking about their problems first. And so now when I go out into the world, I'm always thinking about problems first. And we sit down and we just say, what is your workflows? What are your problems? Where are the bottlenecks? That's the most important thing. Large language models can fix some things, but not all things. It's incredible, but it's not magic. And so when we understand where those problems are, then we say, well, are those hair on fire problems or are those itch problems? Like, well, what are we really talking about here? You know, and oftentimes in the sales funnel, which we focus on a lot, those happen, you know, especially in times like this, uh, economically, those tend to be hair on fire problems. Sometimes operational problems inside a business, though important, may not be as hair on fire as some of those other problems in the sales funnel. So we start to identify and prioritize those things. And then, you know, we like to do POCs first. We like to evaluate and test before going into large scale production. So there's a process uh, that we go through, but asking questions and listening is by far one of the most valuable things that I've learned over the years. A lot of people don't think about their workflow. A lot of people don't think about their process consci consciously. I mean, I I know that I don't. I try to, but I know that I don't. For instance, I'll give you an example of something that I know I could probably change in my workflow based on this conversation, uh, which is that I tend to do the stuff that I have to get done, you know, and all the client-facing stuff. I do that first because yeah. you have to get that off your desk. Um, but then there's the work that I do that, frankly, is the value add. That's what you call your genius zone. That's the term you use. And mm -hmm. that's where, you know, I'm in flow and I'm generating original stuff. It's fresh thinking, my own writing and so forth. And I always do that after, which I think is kind of weird, right? I should reverse the order because the genius zone stuff Absolutely. is really, that's what pays the bills ultimately. And um, 
And I'll bet when you have these conversations with people, you're you're helping them reveal themselves to themselves. You know, like they're starting to discover stuff about their own workflow. I think this is going to be generally true with artificial intelligence. Every organization is going to have to think about how do we do what we do? How are we organized? Is that the right organization? Are we solving all the right problems? Is there stuff that we're not addressing? That's hard. Negative discovery, like finding the stuff that you're not dealing with. And is there stuff that could be done more efficiently? Um, or, you know, what consumes yeah. a lot of resources here? And, and is there any way to automate some yeah. part of that? You know, well, you, you, know so the, the manufacturers whole, do that. Well, um, I mean, that's where we start with this, right? We start with supply chain and things like that. You know, that that's where we're looking at sort of massive resource efficiency gains and so forth. But ultimately, it's like, you know, Boaz was saying at the start, you know, you, you take the stuff that's difficult and, you know, um, you know, just uh, repetitive yeah. robotic work. You mm -hmm. you delegate that to AI. That's the augmentation piece, right? Is you exactly. you and and so you sort of can classify the world as people using AI or people who are going to have part of their jobs replaced by AI. You know, because they're not using yeah. it. Um, and that, but that ultimately leads to us thinking about structuring corporations quite differently. Mm -hmm. So this is where I, I, you know, this is where Rob and I have had a he healthy debate on this over the mm -hmm. life of the show about how automation is going to affect em employment patterns and so forth. And right now it's easy to say, listen, if you're AI powered, if you augment your career or your business with AI, you are going to differentiate against your competitors. And that's, that's for the next 10 years, that's probably going to hold true. But at some point we're going to be, um, have these powerful AI agents that can replace mm -hmm. huge functions of the corporation, like automatically doing accounting. I mean, look, yeah. Brett, one of the points you've made, which I think is very convincing, candidly, is that every function in a bank could be replaced by artificial intelligence, right? Yeah. So there's, you know, it's not just generative AI. You can use analytical AI and some of the like, tradi traditional AI. Banks have been using check scanning for 30 years. So there's a kind yeah. of AI that we take for granted. Um, but the point, I guess, is that every job function could be broken down and replaced by by an algorithm. Yeah, but this, this is but a here's the way. Thought. But think about that for a second. Like, so what is the company of the future? And Boaz, help us figure, visualize that. Right, right yeah. now, you're an organization of thirty people. Yeah. Are those organizations going to have From a design people, perspective. one person? Yeah. I think the organizations are going to be smaller, but there's going to be more smaller organizations. And you know, when banks came out with ATMs. Everybody talked about the teller being dead, but more bank branches were created because you could, and because, and, and you know, more more jobs were not were created anymore, because. Oh, is that <laughs> because that I, stat is over? Uh, that's interesting. No, no, no. Well, no. I mean, um, or the so branches I, I are closed. I mean, I'm I'm writing a book for for next year. It's called Branch Today Gone Tomorrow, and the the major points of the book are that if you look at um, if you look at the EU. We're at 50% of peak branches now. And, um, you know, the same will be true of the States probably in 2026, 2027. Um, the UK hit that milestone long ago. So did uh, places like Australia and New Zealand and so forth. But the point is we hit peak branches sometime probably around 2017. The first time in 500 years that the world has seen a decrease in in bank branches, but in the West, that's that's been happening now for over a decade. So we are definitely yeah. On I think the, you along the climb. I, I think you're probably right, but don't you agree that when ATMs came out, there was this fear that branches were going to die? Well, even when internet banking came out, right? Yeah. You know, but the mobile 
was the thing. The mobile really killed yeah. the branch, you know. And and um, you know, like if you look now, all of the fastest growing banks in the world, or the fastest growing financial institutions, because including wallets, are all digital, digitally enabled, True. right? So acquiring customers at at scale. But you know, to Rob's point earlier, you can now like that's that's for customer onboarding and for day-to-day banking, that has certainly been the game changer. And so that human contact is just not necessary. You know, one of the debates I have with banks when we're talking about this is, if I need to see a human in banking today, that is a design failure. Because Mm. I know there are banks that can design those moments out of your experience because they focus on that specifically. And so, if you think about all of our interactions, health interactions with doctors, you know, interactions with the government regarding tax, you know, and, and all of these sorts of things, we can design out those, those human interactions. They're just not needed. I think that's true. And I think that there are going to be moments where human to human emotion and interaction and EQ are massively important. And I know that there's a lot of upskilling conversations. Yeah, but for important stuff, now. not like your bank balance. Yeah, right? for important stuff. For <laughs> yeah. important stuff, of course. Yeah, but I think that you know, to your question, Robert, like, what is the future going to look like in these organizations, and how are humans going to compete against you know super intelligent machines? I think EQ and human to human interaction is going to be valued and is going to be important. Of course, we're going to have this augmentation that happens with machines, and we're going to get much more used to that. But I, th- I think we still have value. And I think that's going to show up for, for a lot of people. And as we know in business, some people have high EQ and some don't. And I think that's going to be a, a valuable skill. Jack Ma used to talk a lot about this, actually. You know, um, he actually talked about the fact that machines can't love and, and you know, the experiential side. And he said, that's where, the, that's where we go in terms of human differentiated mm-hmm. uh, work is, is you, you go down the EQ route. He, he was a big believer in that. He is about that is that the jobs that involve humans caring for other humans are not the highest paid jobs. In many respects, they're some of the lowest paid and most disrespected jobs, even though they're very important. And I'm talking about nurses and, um, yeah. and nurses and people who do, you know, care for aged people, uh, the elderly or the disabled people, um, people who are teachers. Right. These are jobs that are important. Everyone agrees they're important, but we don't really pay that much. So the economy says it doesn't place as much value on those functions. Maybe that uh, will change. My belief yeah, is, I, I think yeah. that has to change. My belief and I is think also, do more of that. Yeah. Well, I think also if you start thinking about what are you what are you going to want to experience? If you have high levels of automation in society, then what are the human experiences you're looking for? Travel, history, yep. art, philosophy, education. Um, you know, and there are opportunities for that human 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 to human contact in in that space, but. Can I ask yeah. you guys uh, something about the the future of work that I, I want, I'm sure you've talked about this on the show. I just wonder what your perspective is on universal uh, income and what's going to happen oh, oh my civil gosh. unrest. Oh my god! I know it's, it's a, I know it's a <laughs> I read a whole I read a whole thesis on it in in it, the it, last it, book, but um, it's like yeah. the core issue in this show is universal <laughs> yeah. basic. Well, income. look, you know, the look. I think the reason you have Zuck and, um, you know, Gates and, and Musk and all of these guys talk about UBI is that um, since the 70s, the overarching driver for the way we measure the, the performance improvement of economies is pro- implement, 
implementation of productivity gains, right? And the ultimate in productivity gain is removing humans. So if you, if you are successful at creating highly autonomous, highly productive economies, you're going to have much higher technology unemployment. So that's why they say UBI is the only solution. Because if you want to keep capitalism going, you have to keep consumption going. Okay, so I, me, think it's, I think it's that. fairly inevitable. Let me respond to that. So view, Brett's view has been pretty consistent on this since we first met, uh, which yeah. is that it's inevitable. And it's in, in his books and so forth. Now, last week we had a guest on the show, Byron Reese, who's written uh, eloquently on this subject. Yeah, you and Katie things, and Beauty, right? One, yeah, he's great. And one of the things he mentioned in his book, uh, The Fourth Age, is um, he did the economics of uh, UBI. Uh, you know, we don't tend to think about this too much, but the cost of living, you have to take that into account, right? So what does it actually take to live in, you know, the, the, the numbers that are offered when you hear about a universal basic income are a couple thousand dollars a month, $3,000 a month or something. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that. Now, you, you know, that if you live in a city, like you live in Seattle, I live in Los Angeles, uh, you know, these cities are expensive to live in, even Bangkok, very expensive to live in a city like that. Um, $3,000 doesn't really cut it. I mean, that might be your mm. rent, but it's not going to cover your food and your you know, your utilities and everything else. Um, but the reason why they can't offer a higher income, you know, like $10,000 or something, is that it would consume 70% of the GDP of the country. In other words, nations would have to confiscate 70% of the wealth. And considering most of the wow. people we're talking about would not be earning an income, right? In that scenario, you're really talking about confiscating more than 70% of the wealthiest people. I mean, it's really weird to me that the tech titans, these billionaires are the ones that are talking about a UBI because they would be on the receiving end of that uh, that confiscatory behavior. Uh, to make the numbers work, it's not that complicated. US economy- Either that or or you massively increase GDP, which could happen with AI. But the other, I mean, it's quite binary. If you don't have UBI for people or you don't have job programs or some sort of, um, you know, uh, stimulus or social relief uh, structure for people who are losing their jobs to automation, you have social unrest that results yeah. in the collapse of the yeah, system. I agree. Right? So that's yeah. why there's an argument for some, you know, and that's why those how UBI billionaires work, care, but it has to. Because otherwise they're coming with pitchforks yeah. for the for the tech giants, right? You know. And and as I think about the future 20 years from now, I just think that that's going to be an element that we have to address and deal sure. with. It's a bit of a third rail, but we have to address it. The other it's, one it's, that I think a lot about the core of it is, is capital bias tech technology change, right? So technological change that that sends increasing returns to the owners of capital, right? And AI certainly fits that, just like robotics but and wealth distribution, massive wealth distribution problem. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I um, think about a lot is biological uh, in a, uh, differences between the rich and the poor. So as I look at AI and quantum computing and the things that are going to happening around uh, gene manipulation and engineering, but also, you know, there's a lot of talk now about living longer. And I think that the more okay, resources yes. that you have, the more differences there is going to be between rich countries, poor company, uh, countries, rich people, poor people. And I think that's going to be a real issue, maybe not in five or 10 years, but in 20 years. Yeah. Uh, I wonder what you guys think about that or if, if that's I something mean, you already see that happening, right? Company, guys like Jeff Bezos are investing massively in, in uh, ex- life extension technology. Uh, the folks in Google are keenly interested in it as well. So yeah, billionaires want to live longer. And it makes sense in a way, if you've got billions and billions of dollars, What's the one thing you can't buy? More life, extended life, right? Time, yeah. And for a fellow like Bill, you know, for for Jeff Bezos to spend $2 billion on life extension, it's nothing for him. He can certainly afford to do that. Okay, but let's let's circle back to a point because we kind of skimmed near it, but we didn't cover it. 
Let's talk about yeah. the robot corporation. So if you if you if you build on what Brett was talking about with banks, and I think he's right, almost every function in a bank can be automated, either with the generative AI on the marketing side or with analytic AI on the you know the banking functions, the financial side. Uh, ultimately, you can imagine a corporation that consists of nothing but robots. Which raises the question, when do we start to see a robot CEO? And do you need a CEO? Do you need a board of directors at that point? If you have an accountable, transparent AI where it's explainable, where the decision, and it's, you sort of look at it and say, well, you know, in the future, it's possible that we can have automated corporations in the cloud. And this is a very strange concept. First of all, what jurisdiction are they in, right? If it's a really good AI. How, how do you license a bank that is an AI? It can yeah. relocate yeah. itself to any jurisdiction, right? So if you change the laws yeah. to try to say, you know, t- uh, higher taxes, well, right. then that- oh, go to Singapore. Yeah, It'll just yeah. switch <laughs> itself over to Singapore uh, or to some other friendly jurisdiction. Uh, this is the original notion that Vitalik Buterin expressed when he was talking about DAOs originally. You know, he called them DAX yeah. at the time, uh, Decentralized Autonomous Corporations. But the other term they used, uh, this is like 10 years ago, the other term they used was ro- uh, cloud robots mm. and robot corporations in the cloud. I think it's a fascinating idea. And my take on like where things are heading with AI is as we automate more functions, like if you're really successful, Boas, and you can help a company of three people function like a company that has 300 people, um, it's it's the logical, you know, the logical uh, kind of end point there is going to be zero people. And, you know, yeah. maybe we'll all own our own corporate. Or, yeah, a handful of supervisors making sure the AI does what it's told. Yeah, I think that... Um... You know, it's true. I, I'd like to believe that humans stay in the loop, but you're right. It's going to be probably less humans that need to stay in the loop. And I think that as the computers get better and as AI gets better, the analysis that's going to happen in an organization is going to be automated. And to your point about yeah. DAOs, like I think that a lot of that analysis that's happening now with humans you know, is going to be automated and there's probably decision-making that can happen. I, I just worry about full autonomy. I worry about it in terms of war. I worry about it in terms of nuclear weapons. I worry about Good thing it in to worry about organizations. It. Yeah, governance so, you know, is going to be a big yeah, issue this year. It's I, going to be a big issue. see that happening. I mean, even that, that uh, open AI incident uh, just a month ago, kind of revealed that even the most artful attempts to design governance, good governance for AI yeah. go wrong, right? The, the whole point, they, the, the board did what it was supposed to do. And then, uh, you know, three days later, Satya Nadella said no. And, you know, yeah. Microsoft- And there's legal well. issues too. It's like, what, how, how do you prosecute, you know, if a computer yeah. has made the decision? So I, well, I think there's yeah, a whole Today we have this concept of fiduciary duty for officers. And, you know, you know, um, so how, you know, can you really hold a CEO or a CFO responsible for what the algorithm's done? This is, yeah, the, the, you know, we are obviously entering some pretty significant new territory in terms of where, where, how we think about corporations. But then, then, you know, if you extend that analogy, when you have large sets of corporations, highly automated working together, and this is the smart contract sort of concept that emerges, you get smart markets and smart economies. Mm-hmm. So imagine what does the US economy look like when half of it is automated? You know, and and again, you know, Robert, you talked about the wealth distribution problem. That's such a problem then when you have that level of automation controlled by these autonomous corporate corporations, you know, unless you're taxing um, you know, I don't know 
processing cycles for AI or something, you know, the ability to distribute that wealth, you know, and wealth capture becomes a massive problem. It's a huge problem. I mean, the irony is that Bill Gates himself is the person who said tax the robots. That was his mantra about 10 years ago. (laughs) Microsoft has done more to automate job functions than any other company on the planet. And with their current drive towards AI, I mean, they're so aggressive about rolling out Copilot. And what is Copilot but a way to study what human workers actually do with their time and the decision process of human makers work, and then gradually optimize it and gradually replace it, right? Like that's that's clearly the agenda there. Uh, so this is the company that is doing the most to drive automation and the displacement of human workers. And yet their view is tax the robots. I don't even know how that's possible. I'd be curious to hear what you all might think about that idea for wealth. Well, it's uh, it's definitely worth listening to Bill Gates' year-end uh, mm. podcast announcement about you know where he thinks AI is going. Because as much as he's excited about what Microsoft is doing, and he is, and automation is important to him and so on, he's also thinking about health because of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And yeah. they're seeing real results in poor countries around being able to apply emerging technology to the health issues. And I hope that is one of the things that we see, uh, we, that we benefit from, including yeah. climate. I mean, there's some big, big problems in the world that could benefit from AI. And I know that there's a narrative in the media around jobs getting lost and about the robots taking over the world. And I think there's, I definitely have some fears around that, but I also am very optimistic about some big societal issues that can be uh, handled. And he's got some statistics in there about um, about uh, pregnant uh pregnant women deaths you know, around the world and the drop that we've seen in that. So that there, there's some uh, optimism out there for sure. Re- resource allocation, energy efficiency, you know, um, you know, uh, better closed loop systems, you know, all, all of those sorts of improvements. AI, that's, that's just a design issue that generative AI and these, these types of models will be able to solve, I think, fairly simply. So um, one, you know, these are elements where we will want AI stepping in. But it's going to very quickly come into conflict with the human value systems, right? Because yeah. if you're an AI and you put the problem to AI of solving the problem of climate change, what is an AI going to suggest? Get rid of fossil fuels as quickly as possible and this is the way to do it, right? And so you are going to come mm-hmm. up against, um, you know, well, I that's think... That's interesting. So the AI recommendations yeah. will come in conflict with really bad human habits that we can't... Uh, we can't I, I, I think so, yeah. That's I think that's how, a really good point. Hey, listen, yeah. I welcome AI governance for society. It, you know, it, there's, there's, it seems to me it would be great to replace Congress right now. If you look at how dysfunctional <laughs> Congress has been... I would much have much rather have an AI there dispensing uh, legislation, if you will. Um, it seems like it'd be a more rational process. It will be interesting when we have a super intelligence. Uh, you know, it seems like these companies are all hell bent on building some kind of uh, super intelligence or maybe yeah. even a you know general intelligence. Although I think that's a little doubtful in the near term. But in the long term, that's what they're aiming for, right? That's clearly the mission statement for OpenAI, and they're driving the whole space right now. Uh, what will a super intelligence make of these gnarly yeah. human problems, you know. Take, take systems, us out to 2040, Boas. Yeah, in give 20 us a years, view. 20, 30 years time, how is this, what does this look like in society? Yeah, 20 years from now, I mean, I think there probably are brain-computer interfaces. I think that's something that we're going to see. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how that's going to play out, but I think that it's going to be possible 20 years from now. Um, 
I definitely see human gene engineering happening and people changing their biological states uh, using uh, this different technology. That's another and, Yuval um, Hariri I, point. He's like, we're the last yeah. generation of unmodified humans. Every subsequent generation will be augmented. I think that's way. true. I, I think that's true. But I think that um, super intelligence will be achieved in 20 years. Definitely. Let's talk about let's talk about the hive mind. You know, so uh, if you start to connect people together with Neuralink or some other brain interface, uh, and you're connected to a computer. It's it's just going to be a moment after that that they say, well, you can actually network your mind with other minds, and in in doing that, you would give up all privacy, right? Because your private thoughts would be available to others. And that's weird, but on the other hand, privacy is getting eroded so fast. Maybe we'll maybe it'll be normalized at that point. On the other hand, you'll have access to all that brain power. So people are going to be given this choice of like, hey, would you like to up massively upgrade your intelligence by connecting to the hive mind? But you have to give up your privacy. Um, all your private thoughts are going to be known by everybody else. On the other hand, you know, you can keep your private thoughts to yourself, but you're going to be at a huge disadvantage because you'll have these other growing number of people who have a hive mind. Uh, I, I see that as a coming thing in the next 20 years, and it'll be a super interesting challenge for society. I wonder yeah, if we're around this good. Lower your shields, <laughs> surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness. It always to comes back own. to science fiction on this show. You see it's the origin story for Sorry, all of these I things. Had to. Well, um, I, I just really appreciate that you guys are talking about this stuff right now and thinking about it because I think ultimately the narrative in the public and the public discourse needs to expand. And it's not just about the fear that uh, we've been talking about, but both sides. And so I, I yeah, really appreciate being on the show. Yeah. And this is like the, the big opportunity is a philosophical shift that we can yeah. entertain. Because we've it touches got the everybody, tools, right? So yeah. we all should talk about it. It shouldn't be yes. the conversation shouldn't be limited to a handful of technologists who have you know have knowledge about yes. AI systems. It's like, well, everybody should have a part in this conversation because it's going to affect everybody. Hey, Boaz, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you very kindly for joining us on the Futurist this week. Great show. Um, you know, a, a ton of work goes into preparing the show. I want to give a year-end shout-out to our crew at Provoke Media. They do a great job behind the scenes. Kevin Hershon is our engineer every week. He makes us sound great, so thank you, Kevin, for that and the music. Uh, Lisbeth Severance, who helps us organize the show and produces it. Again, you don't get to see her, but we talk to her all the time. She makes all the trains run on time here at The Futurists, and we're grateful to her and everybody at Provoke. And we also want to give a year-end shout-out to the folks who listen. Uh, our audience has been growing great in, in many different countries. Uh, it's growing by leaps and bounds in the short time that we've been producing this show. And we just want to give you our deep, deep appreciation. We're very grateful for the support, the feedback, the social commentary, uh, friends and followers who are reaching out to us with comments and questions and suggestions for speakers. That's great feedback. So thank you very much. As we close the year out, we just want to say thanks for helping us make this show successful. It's been a tremendous pleasure. And finally, my holiday greetings to Brett and his family. Uh, it's been such fun Thanks, hanging man. out with Brett and doing the well, show. It's 2024. We've got a lot planned. We're going to do a lot yeah. more live stuff on social. So if you're, if you're a listener, you'll be able to participate in Q&A and stuff like that. So stay tuned. There's a lot of exciting uh, things happening and, and we've got some massive guests coming on for next season. So Super. you're going to love it. We'll be back next week with another Futurist. And until then, we'll see you. We'll see you in the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter 
at at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.